Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray. This podcast launched on March 17th, right as the coronavirus was really winding up to wallop the U.S. So we've been covering that news pretty hard. We've talked to leaders who are searching for a vaccine, others who are working to strengthen supply chains, and to those who are trying to protect both their employees and salvage their bottom lines. But today we're going to take a break from all of that. I want to bring in my partner here for a minute, Fortune Senior Editor Ellen McGirt. Ellen, thank you for joining. Months ago when we started envisioning this podcast, I assumed we'd spend a lot of time talking about sustainability, about the growing number of companies that were then focusing on their environmental footprint. Hey, Alan. Great to be with you. And you're right. I don't know about you, but in the early weeks of this year, My inbox was full of announcements and big plans about companies going carbon neutral, particularly in consumer-facing businesses. Anything that touches human beings, they're thinking about their supply chains and their packaging, from beauty and and fashion, all of it. Yeah, we talked about this in our very first episode with uh, Satya Nadella. Uh, But clearly, since then, promoting these kinds of efforts has really taken a backseat to the pandemic, COVID-19. That's true, and that was necessary, but I don't think they've disappeared. There's reasons to be optimistic. I did some reporting this week, and I came away with two pieces of inspiration that I thought would be perfect for this moment. One from global chairman of PwC, Tim Ryan. We were talking about losing momentum on things that you really care about in business. For us, it was diversity and inclusion, but this advice is good for absolutely anybody, is that yes, you have to expect that things are going to go wrong and things are going to be delayed and you have to examine that and acknowledge that. And you have to look at it head on. What can you do and what can't you do? And I thought that was a pretty courageous place to start. The second person I talked to was Sheryl Sandberg, the CEO of Facebook, who had her lean-in hat on and was sharing some pretty troubling data about the economic impacts of the pandemic on certain populations and especially black women. And she said, this is the time for allies. That was her big advice. If you are, have never been a person who cared about the environment before or cared about social equity before, this is the time to raise your voice. And I tell you, that made me feel really optimistic. Ellen, that's a really good point. I mean, we are in the midst of what is probably going to be the worst economic crisis of our lifetimes, right? Uh, and an awful lot of companies can't focus on anything but their bottom line because they have to survive. They need the resources to just keep the company alive. Uh, And that tends to distract people from things like the environment or inclusivity or other social goals. But I find the same thing that you're finding again and again in conversation with CEOs. They say this is a moment of truth. We have to have a serious conversation about what we want to be as a company when we emerge from this crisis. What are the values that are really going to remain important to us because those are going to carry us through? And that brings us to today's conversation. You spoke to Eileen Fisher, a woman whose business has focused on sustainable practices for over 30 years. Yeah, it was it was fascinating. Eileen Fisher founded her woman's clothing line back in 1984. She has over 1,200 employees, about a half a billion dollars in annual revenue. But the reason I wanted to talk to her is that if you look at the company's annual report, one of the first sentences in there is, quote, 
we do business differently. So I ask her, how do you do business differently? Well, actually, I started my business not knowing how to run a business or what business was all about. So I think I just did what made sense to me, which is, first of all, I'm a designer. So there's always that kind of art piece of what I do. And um, the sort of center part of the work is always the creative piece. But not having worked too much for other people, I, I didn't I didn't know how to do that. So it was always more just um, how do I work with people? How do I include people? Um, Eileen, you haven't said anything about making money. Oh, <laughs> well, we must make money to keep going, to make a living, you know. So certainly that was some part of my motivation, you know. You, you made an early decision to uh, share ownership of the company with your employees. Mm-hmm. Why did you do that? Uh, well, actually, it started by... As soon as we started making money, the first thing I thought of it was to share it with the people who helped do the work and make it happen. I'm sure you have had many opportunities over the years to either take on investors who wanted to see you grow or to sell the company. But you've kept 100% of the control in your hands and your employees' hands. Why? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I'm really glad I did. I can tell you that. Because I, I really feel um, we don't answer to stockholders in the same way or to the quarterly numbers. I don't think I understood it at the time. I just felt that other people didn't understand my concept, you know, and it was like my, my child. I didn't want to give my concept to someone who <laughs> didn't really get it. A lot of business people think growth is the ultimate goal, and you probably could have achieved faster growth, and there were probably plenty of people who would have given you the money to do that. Um, So why not? Well, I don't get it about growth. I don't get that that's what it's all about. (laughs) You know, for me, you know, it's about doing what I love and, you know, staying true to the concept and sort of the soul of the company. And, um, I don't know that growth is what makes it better. So to me, it's always what makes it better. And so I'm much more interested in growing in what we call circular way, like how do we grow this company so that it's um, taking full responsibility for its impacts um, on the environment, on the people working. Um, So that's where I'm passionate right now. But did you have a a tutor in all of this? I mean, where did you get your (laughs) rules of running a business? Who told you how to do it? Very interesting. No, I I was involved with an organization called Social Venture Network. Uh Ben and Jerry, people were there. You know, lots of interesting sort of progressive companies that were trying to, at that point, change the world through business. So I, I learned a lot from them. And then at some point, you made the decision to become a B Corp. Describe what a B Corp is and why you did that. So we had been working on um, thinking business models and the work that we do, um, we'd been working on the environment and also just social parts of the work, working with the workers in the factories and looking at how we can make a difference through the business. Uh, And then when we heard about B Corp, we thought, oh, that's a business model that actually represents us. Uh, That's what we're already working on. And working with B Corp, we can work to do better. So it forced us to begin to really measure and track uh, all the things we were doing. You know, it wasn't enough just to... To say it. Just to say it or, just it. To, or just, even just to do it. Yeah. We had to actually measure it and account for it. And, and that's what B Corp's all about, actually holding 
the companies accountable. You know, Eileen, we say this podcast is about the new rules of business leadership, but you've been doing this for 36 years. Do you find more people are trending your direction? Did you find in the early years that people said, hey, you're crazy, you could save money by doing (laughs) this, or you could make more money doing that? Uh, How how do you see this issue developing over time? Um, Yeah, I think it's becoming an urgent thing. And I think that especially with the next generation coming up and the planetary crisis that everyone is aware that we're in, I think the companies that aren't doing this kind of work are going to be gone in five years or 10 at the most. And do you find more people in business recognize that today than they did when you started? Oh, yes. Radically more in the last two years, I would say. Really? Yeah. So you're getting invitations to speak or to sh- show yeah, us how you do we it? we actually, actually didn't talk much about the work we were doing until the last few years because for us it was always, well, it's never enough. We're never good at, you know, like, I don't want to talk about this project I'm doing here if it's not, if it doesn't represent everything that we're doing. You realize most companies are the opposite. I they, know, they, they want talk to tell first. the one story. <laughs> well, there's value to that too because sometimes it draws in you know, yeah. people. Let's talk about the environmental piece a little bit. Yeah. I don't think most people recognize what a polluting industry fashion mm, is. It's terrible. Yeah. Can mm-hmm. you talk about that? I mean, yeah. explain what it is that ma- makes it traditionally so dirty. Yeah. Well, almost everything about it. Um, <laughs> that's terrible to say, but we use a lot of water. Um, growing fibers, uh, the processing, the chemicals and the dyes, the, the workers are stressed and overworked and it's pretty bad. Yeah. So talk about what you've done at Eileen Fisher to address those problems. Uh, we try hard and we are not perfect. We look at all of our uh, raw materials because that's really where our biggest impact is so that's where we start so um, do you actually work directly i mean you're not that big a company do yeah. you work directly with, with the cotton farmers? farmers oh yes we work with cotton farmers and sheep herders and to make sure they have sustainable practices yeah and and to yeah to support them and to Get the, help them get the education. Um, you know, we convene dye houses in China and, and help to support wow. them and br- help bring in consultants to retool and things like that. Your supply chain is based in what countries or is it spread out? Um, it's spread out 30% in domestic, which is far more than most. And we're trying to bring more back. Um, probably 30% in China today, South Asia. Um, we do Peru. Um, we have fabric suppliers all, all, all around Italy and uh, Argentina. And, you know, we're pretty global. And when you go to these suppliers and say you can't use this water wasting practice, right. or you can't use this particular chemical, isn't the response sometimes, well, then it's going to cost you more money? Uh, yeah. And, and, how do you, and what do you say if that's the case? Well, sometimes we pay more. Um, like organic cotton costs 15% more, so we pay it, and it's hard to pass it on to the customer. Um, it does cost more, um, but we believe it's really important. Some things actually end up in the long run costing less. Uh, for example, the closed loop process. Of you, you actually can clean the water and recycle the chemicals and actually contain 
um, save mo- the, the, and, and end save up money. saving money yeah. and using less water. So some it's, it depends on, on what it is. And know? then fairly recently, you've also begun a clothing recycling oh, yes. business. Can you? Not recently. It's oh, been really? More than 10 years. Oh, 10 years. We've been now. taking wow. our clothes back long before anyone else did. And what but, do you do with them when you take them back? Uh, so first of all, as many as possible, we clean and resell. So we have a couple of stores, and we resell them in quite a few of our stores. But we also, what we can't resell, we have a, what we call our tiny factory, which isn't so tiny, it's 20,000 square feet in Irvington. Um, but we remake the clothes into other garments, and now we're actually starting a line of home furnishings. We have, right now, wall pieces and pillows. We're working on rugs. Um, but we're actually remaking, we're felting, uh, these scraps of fabrics into new materials that are actually amazing. Now, some of your customers would say, well, of course, Eileen can do that because she charges us so much for the well, clothes. Yeah, I get that, right. <laughs> uh, but, and, uh, but are these practices that can, uh, that can be spread more broadly across the industry? Yeah, um, we're actually working to share information with other manufacturers. We belong to most of the organizations that are in the industry that are trying to share information. And so obviously we work with Patagonia and many other small um, apparel businesses and, and large also to, to just share what we're doing and where we're doing things and what are the best practices. And, uh, you know, we believe we can make a difference in the industry and in the world. And one of my favorite things we're doing right now uh, is uh, that we're looking at not just how we can do less bad, how we can um, pollute less and use less energy and less water and those kinds of things, but actually how we can do good. So we have this amazing project in Argentina where uh, they're actually um, regenerating the land um, through the process of the sheep herding and it's a wool um, organization and the idea that we can use our business to actually draw down carbon and regenerate the land is very powerful. Fascinating. One of the things that Eileen said is that her company works with other manufacturers to share best practices. Ellen, I know you spoke with one of those companies that I have to admit, I hadn't heard of before, public school. They're in New York and they're not a school, are they? They are not a school and they're definitely from New York and they're of New York. Uh, They were a fascinating conversation. Maxwell Osborne and Dao Wee Chow are founders of this multiple award-winning fashion brand, Public School. And they're both New Yorkers and yes, they both went to public school where they really got a sense of the melting pot swagger of New Yorkers, all from different places, yet from New York, expressing themselves through fashion. They had joined forces to create a brand that fuses that specific energy in 2008 to immediate buzz, and they really deserved it. They're street smart and bold, inspired by the melting pot culture with big nods to hip hop and all that, but with tailored elements that make it unique and accessible to everyone, and that includes people who haven't heard from them before. That's a big part of their partnership, but they stand for something bigger. It's accessible. They want everybody in there. Um, It's about making the world work for everyone. They even have a recurring motif in their work, the initials WNL, which appears on hats and things, which stands for a couple of things, which I know our crowd will love. It means we need leaders to fight system change, 
It also means when nobody's looking, which is a test of character. Are you doing the right thing when nobody's around? And why not love, which is pretty self-explanatory. Now, they hit a plateau in 2010, entered a two-year accelerator program from the Council of Fashion Designers, which was transformational for them. And they came out of that with a fresher sense of purpose and a fresher sense of strategy. And that's how they ended up connecting with Eileen Fisher. Eileen Fisher was a funny story. We, we were actually invited to speak on a panel for the, the Fashion Summit in Copenhagen. And this is when we were early in talking about sustainability in terms of implementing it to our business. So we were still very much learning and we're still learning you know, to this day. But we sat in on other panels and one of the panels we sat in while we were in Copenhagen was Eileen Fisher's. And she talked about the tiny factory and how her process is and, and how she welcomes her doors to people and we reached out. And her team showed us around and showed us their process and you know, we had to come back and we ran into Eileen Fisher there. She was in the office and we joked about doing a collaboration, which kind of came about came to fruition. She had no idea who we were. She was like, oh, it sounds cool. But then like, you know, after enough talks and you know, they got really excited because of the two cla- you know, like when a collaboration happens, it really is a mixing of the two worlds and like we would never think we would do Eileen Fisher, but the sensibility of the brand of the tiny factory and what they're talking about in their soapbox is very similar to ours, but the product is very different. So that was like a really fun collaboration to come about that helped us in many ways, other than just the collaboration itself is like learning and how we implemented those same techniques that they taught us into our own business. Was there anything specific you can share that, that made a difference right away? Yeah. Like even the way they work with patterns and how they deconstruct because you could walk through their, their tiny factories of something that everybody should take a look at, how they receive the goods, how they sort the goods, how they wash the goods, how they store the goods together, how they have their team to deconstruct and reconstruct new garments and using every last piece and every last square inch of fabric somehow, some way, where it's zero waste is, is really amazing. So, you know, the idea of sometimes you think about upcycled or dead stock fabric, recycled clothing, just it, you feel like it's old. But the, the way they do it makes it feel really new. And then changing that conversation, because there's so much more you can do and fabric techniques you can, you can use and, and learning how to use every last piece of fabric. I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, who is the CEO of Deloitte U.S. and had the good sense to sponsor this podcast. Thanks for being with us and thanks for your support. Thanks, Alan. Pleasure to be here. So, Joe, this new wave of business technology, artificial intelligence, Internet of Things, the ability to make intelligence out of data is creating huge opportunities for companies. But a lot of the CEOs I talk to feel daunted by it. It's like, where do they get the imagination? to rethink their entire corporation. How do they deal with that? The opportunities are immense, particularly when you look at not just any one of these technologies individually, but the convergence of all of them collectively, creating the opportunity to truly transform business models. And I know it can seem daunting, but the reality is taking a first step in actually produces huge benefit because what we're finding is that
that many of the cutting edge applications are not coming out of the corporate headquarters. They're coming out of putting the technology in the hands of our people on the front lines. They find new and innovative uses. We then funnel them back up and leverage them across the entire client base. Yeah, it really gets to the importance of a culture of innovation at the company. It is essential that our people feel empowered to take the latest and greatest and to find new and innovative ways to use it for productive purposes. Thank you, Joe. Alan, it's a real pleasure. So, Eileen, there always have to be trade-offs. There have to have been tough decisions where profit would have said go left, but planet or people might have said go right. Can you tell us a story, one story where you had to make a difficult trade-off? Yeah, we wrestle with that all the time, especially as I was talking about before, materials is our our core business. So we had a knit material, which was kind of a really important anchor material for our whole business. And um, we found out, we started studying more about that material. We thought it was okay because it was it was made from viscose. So that's made from wood pulp and wood pulp's uh, natural. But uh, when we visited the factory, we were disturbed by the chemical use. And even though it was a great factory, one of the best factories, um, they have to wear these heavy masks to mm. work with the, the, the chemicals. So we got scared. So we said, we need to phase out of this material. This is our best-selling material. It was a tough loss for us. And um, we're still kind of, I'm saying, reeling a little bit. But at the same time, we're innovating. We're finding amazing new fabrics. But sometimes more costly. Yes, more costly. And, uh, you know, some of it yes and some of it no. We're still studying several different materials. And nothing has fully replaced that fabric. So it's created a little more complexity. Um, but we also see uh, some really interesting things coming out of it. And, and so these new materials are cleaner. They're, they're made from tensile. Uh, tensile is a process that uses closed-loop technology. It cleans the water as they go. So, so we're proud of that. Um, and, and we love the fabrics we're discovering and we're working with the manufacturers, but it's a long process, sort of like our recycle, you know, it's the felting, it's incredible. And we're just, just starting to really sell the product that's coming out of it. So it's exciting. It just takes time. This innovation takes time. You said that you see more and more companies, particularly in the last two years, moving in your yeah. direction. Yeah. What do you think is going on? What, wh- how do you account for what's happened in the last couple of years? Yeah, I think there's been a lot of press and the customers are becoming aware and the young people and education with the young people, the next generation of designers. They've been educated in the design schools now about what's happening. And uh, so they're on it. And they're, they're coming in with, you know, like a line of sustainable jeans or, you know, T-shirts. And, you know, they're, they're, they're making a difference. Does that mean more competition for you? Do you see sustainability as a competitive advantage? No, actually, I'm delighted. I, I don't think it should be a competitive advantage. I think it's it should be universal. We want to share everything we know. We want to learn from others. Um, this is this is a pre-competitive work that needs to be done. And I I know we want to get more of our stories out, and we would like to see the PR advantage and the marketing advantage too. But mostly, we just want to do the work that needs to be done. And we believe long-term that will serve us and our customers and the world. Let's talk about the diversity piece of it because and female empowerment, because oh. I know that's very important to you. I read somewhere, tell me if this is a true story, 
that when you when it was time for you to go off to college, your father said, I can't pay <laughs> for your college because I have to save the money for your little brother. Right. True story. Yeah. And how did you feel about that at the time? Well, you know, it was a different moment in time. And I felt um, like I understood. It sounds crazy, you know, but I remember thinking, well, I don't I, I'm going anyway, you know, so I I worked as a waitress and, you know, saved up money and went to college. Of course, I couldn't have gone to a private school, but that's a different story. I don't know if today I could have afforded the college, college the price it costs. So. How did that affect your view of business? You know, I just felt like, why why can't girls do it? I'm just as good as he is or they are, I, you know. And I have ideas and I want to do it, you know, so but why not? you talked about this at the beginning, which was, yes, you did it, but you did it differently. Oh, I, I did what my instincts told me to do, how to, how to do it, yeah. which is, you know, how to engage people. It's funny, we just had this great meeting last week and it was just so confirming of this idea of how you include people. And, and, and I, I think it's very uh, um, collaborative and... Uh, you don't, and... you don't sit in a corner office and hand out orders. <laughs> I don't even have an office anymore. <laughs> I walk around and, and convene with people. And what do you see as your role in keeping the business on track? Um, I see what I try to do is hold the creative, hold the concept, hold the concept at the center of the work that we're doing. So our basic concept is to make simple clothes that are timeless, that are comfortable, and that work for women to support them to uh, go out in the world and not worry so much about how they look, but to feel good and to be comfortable. So your job is to set the values, uh, to yeah. give people the direction, the inspiration, as uh, opposed yeah. to hand out orders. Oh, definitely. <laughs> I don't hand out orders. I give people big pictures and, and try to include them in what I'm thinking about, and they come up with a million ideas. So where do you go from here? What will uh, Eileen Fisher look like five years from now or 10 years from now? <laughs> Don't ask me how big it'll be because I won't be able to tell you that. <laughs> that but it I sounds think like it will that be just better. happens. It'll I, be better. Okay. I think it will be better. How will it be better? Well, I think we'll be cleaner, we'll be more circular, we'll be um, more of the products that we're recycling, we'll be a, a fully circular operation and we'll be serving, maybe we'll serve more women um, we haven't decided to serve men yet, so we still think women need We're a lot waiting. more support. We're waiting. <laughs> I know, a little get, diversity Get would the be guys good. out of the suits, especially the ties. That's too much. <laughs> like, what, where did that come from? Whose idea was that? So if you were talking to a group of entrepreneurs or, people, yeah. or young people who want to be entrepreneurs, yeah. who want to start their own business, based on your 36 years of experience, what's the advice you would give them? Well, I like the word you were using, purpose, you know, find out what matters most to you. Uh, stay true to that. And it's going to be a bumpy ride if you're going to start a business and don't get lost in it. Don't give everything of yourself to it because that's an easy thing to do too. Eileen Fisher, thank you. Fascinating conversation. My pleasure. Thank you, Alan. Leadership Next is produced by Dan Sacker, edited and engineered by Nicole Vergala, and written by me, Alan Murray. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media.
Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. Hey, Leadership Next listeners. There's more C-Suite Insight available now at the all-new Fortune. You'll find expert curation, exclusive videos, and clear analysis on topics ranging from AI to digital health. Subscriptions start at less than a dollar a week. Visit fortune.com slash subscribe and discover why it pays to know.